Greetings, everyone, and thank you for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Kevin Drewley, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow associate editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. I know you can't see them, and neither can I, but rest assured my esteemed colleagues are waving a hearty hello as we continue to work remotely amid the COVID-19 pandemic. This is March, and it marks episode 13 of the podcast, or XIII, if you're into Roman numerals outside of Super Bowls and Rocky movies. And that means we're officially embarking upon the start of year two of On the Safe Side. Wherever you're listening to us today, whether it's your first episode, 13th, or somewhere in between, we thank you for spending time with us. We hope everyone out there is safe and healthy during this time. And as always, we want to offer a sincere thank you to the safety professionals who are doing all they can to keep our workers healthy and safe during the pandemic. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news on COVID-19 and other daily updates from around the safety world, please check our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We also have a brand new website for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. You can find us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family to learn all about safety away from work. During this month's episode, we'll plunge into a deep dive for one of our stories from the March issue of Safety and Health talking with Alan about situational awareness. In our five questions with segment, we'll discuss safety leadership with Don Groover from DACRA. And of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz. With NCAA tournament basketball set to return this month following a 2020 hiatus, we'll see if the slipper still fits as we recall some of our favorite memories from March Madness's past. With that, let's cue the music and get this episode rolling. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we'll take a closer look at a story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In our March issue, Alan writes about situational awareness in safety. This story delves into how staying alert and on your toes can lead professionals in any industry to ultimately be safer, along with how it creates a separate dimension of hazard control. Alan, why don't you take us on an exploration into this topic, will you? I saw a pretty decent and simple definition of situational awareness on the old internet machine the other day, and I didn't use this in my story, but it's knowing what's going on around you, and I think that sums it up pretty well if you had one sentence. Of course, I needed multiple sentences for my story, but I would add another part to that definition, especially when it comes to safety, and this comes from the beginning of my story, and I'm going to paraphrase Corey Worden, a safety advisor for the City of Houston Department of Health and an Air Force veteran, he said, standard operating procedures, regulations, checklists, and the like mean very little. People don't react when it's needed or in an emergency. So part of situational awareness is the ability to use safety measures or protections in real time. And some ways to develop situational awareness are communication, so talking or meeting about it training, and perhaps most importantly, practice drills or simulations. One of the most important points in the story is that situational awareness needs fairly consistent reinforcement. And Chris Corbett, uh, director of Atlas Injury Prevention Solutions, said, quote, it has to be something that is kind of dripped over and over so that it's always on the forefront of people's minds. Again, consistent reinforcement, like we do with the fire or tornado drills, so people know what to do when the time comes or they know what to look for. Now, in the story, Alan, you write about the different levels of awareness. Can you talk a little more about those? This comes from a March 2012 article published by Stratfor. It detailed five levels of awareness, and that's tuned out, relaxed awareness, 
focus awareness, high alert, and, and comatose. And the article notes that people should be in relaxed awareness as a default, and that's comparable to the practice of defensive driving. And this organization says, quote, you are relaxed, enjoying your drive, but you're still watching for road hazards, maintaining a safe following distance, and keeping an eye on the behavior of the drivers around you. Relaxed awareness also isn't as mentally or physically draining as the three higher states of awareness. Now, focus awareness is where you should be when encountering a potential dangerous situation, such as driving in inclement weather or performing a hazardous task. And being in that state of focus awareness allows you to go into high alert if there's an emergency. And now you don't want to go beyond high alert because the next level is comatose, which is where fear or shock takes over, and that can leave you overwhelmed or paralyzed. So, Alan, you write in your story that stress is one of the things that can take away situational awareness. Can you tell us, are there other things that deteriorate situational awareness? Yes, there are. And stress is one of the seven brain-centered hazards identified by DACRA, Organizational Safety and Reliability, that can hinder workplace safety and decrease situational awareness. Uh, Rajni Walia from that organization said the others are fatigue, fast brain functioning, memory, social think, distraction, or divided attention, and visual recognition. And to go into a couple of these a little deeper, so fast brain functioning occurs when we perform repeated tasks or routines, and that's because of our need to conserve the brain's energy. We sometimes don't fully think about what we're doing. We go on autopilot, and we can probably think of times when that's happened, like driving somewhere and not remembering how we got there. Social think is our habit, our need to go along with the group and not speak up when needed. If you or I had been working together for a while, I might assume you can see a hazard or you might perform a needed safety measure, but that's not always the case. And visual recognition was detailed in a February 2019 story that you should be familiar with, Barry, entitled Seeing Safety in a New Way, which we talked about how we can use our visual attention selectively. We don't always see what's there, and that takes training to help overcome or, or lessen that effect. Another way organizations can help avoid lapses in situational awareness is a consistent messaging on safety. Again, this is from Rajni Walia. She said, while my manager may tell me that safety is important, if they talk about deadlines or production targets with more emotion, my brain says, just do whatever it takes to get the job done. That's what my manager cares more about. And when this happens, workers might rush through tasks or overlook dangers. Another way employers can help is by uh, bolstering the supervisor-employee relationship. In a sense, it's Being aware of your employees' moods and mental states and asking how they're doing, that sort of thing. Again, building that relationship. You know, let's say you find out that I have something going on at home that's distracting me. One way to help is to put me on a different job or task. Another way is to perhaps direct me toward an employee assistance program or an EAP. And there's a, there are a few other ways. Uh, Another way that employers can help workers' situation awareness is by giving them autonomy to make decisions when needed or to trust their instincts. That way, you know, they can make those decisions in real time. As far as employees, what they can do is recognize the moments or perhaps the times of day when their attention might wane or when they might go on autopilot like before lunch. That concept kind of comes from our good friend, uh, Tim Page Bodor from Safe Start. And for me, I know I usually forget something when I'm in a rush to get out the door. I also used to have a really bad habit of locking my keys in my car back in my college days into my 20s. 
And one time when I was covering a high school football game, if I remember correctly, I was running late to get there. And I not only left my keys in my car, but I left my car running as well. And I think I burned off somewhere around a quarter tank of gas. Now I do the uh, pocket pat before I shut the door, you know, keys, wallet, cell phone, that sort of thing. And if you're working and you notice you're on autopilot, there is one technique from Chris Corbett to pull yourself out. And then she called it stop. And that's stop take a breath, observe your surroundings, and proceed with awareness. And physiologically, that breathing or using your other senses can engage different parts of your brain and take you out of autopilot. One big challenge in situational awareness is that, Rajni Walia said, is that virtually no one has situational awareness every second of every day. Our focus and attention can obviously lapse or, or wander at times. And naturally, we don't want that happening on the job, especially during dangerous tasks. And workers can help themselves in that area by avoiding distractions and using your cell phone, walking around with headphones or earbuds on. And employers should ideally have policies to keep employees distraction free. Great. Well, thank you, Ellen, for sharing a closer look into your reporting on this story. A really interesting topic. And for any of our listeners who want to read Alan's full story about situational awareness or any other of our news stories, please check out the March print issue of Safety and Health magazine, or you can also visit us online and you can find us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, safety on the job is important for you and for your colleagues as well. We want to make sure that you and your family stay safe and healthy away from work as well. And we have a helpful publication just for you. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine, from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health is packed with tips, advice, and the latest news on topics from the home to the roadway and from your favorite outdoor activities to your sleep, diet, and much, much more. Check us out online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash family to read some of our latest articles or call 800-621-7619 to get a subscription today. Safety leadership is one of the topics we address in Safety and Health Magazine through a monthly column from DACRA, Organizational Safety and Reliability. That leadership has become extra important during this time with all the changes that have happened in our workplace and in our world. To discuss safety leadership, we welcome Don Groover, General Manager of Consulting and Training with DACRA. Don is a frequent contributor to our monthly columns and has more than 30 years of experience in safety consulting, often working with senior executives and leadership teams. Don is also the co-author to the book, The Manager's Guide to Workplace Safety, and he's contributed to a number of other books, including Leading with Safety by Thomas Krauss. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining us here on SafeSide. Thank you. Really, really pleased to be here and, and join in on this conversation. First question, what are some of the most significant changes that have taken place in safety leadership over the course of your career? That's a, that's a really great question. And I've been in this field for 40 plus years. And I think back to my very first job in safety and at that time, the safety department was really responsible for all things safety. And so things like hot work permitting, confined space entry permitting, that was all done by the, the safety and health departments. Back then, we made a shift to where those responsibilities were moved into operations, which was a really significant event in the organization. 
And I will never forget that we had a, a first line supervisor that basically said he wasn't going to do it. Not, not happening, not going to happen on his watch because safety's the safety department's responsibility. How that got resolved was the operations manager looked at him in the meeting where he was taking the stand and he basically said, are you responsible for production? And the frontline supervisor says, absolutely, yes. And he said, well, I don't know how you're going to meet your production targets if your plant's not running because you can't get maintenance done. And, and that was just a vivid reminder to me about how hard sometimes it is to change across time. The other things that I've noticed across this period of time is we really have moved away from in a lot of organizations, a blame the worker mentality. And, and I think if, if you go even go all the way back to Heinrich and the, the research that he did around causation, I mean, that was, that was funded by the insurance company with a specific purpose of finding workers at fault to support the management. But then Deming came along and things really changed. And leadership started to look at causation much differently from it's the person that's responsible to we really need to look in into the systems. I think the other thing, and, and this, was, this was a personal journey for me, was safety leadership is part of a whole. And you can try to carve out safety leadership and understand it, but it's really about leadership. And what is a leader trying to accomplish more holistically? I really do believe that the movement towards creating transformational leaders has really propelled safety leadership. Transformational leaders really care about people. And if you care about people, you care about their safety. The one last point that I'll make is I, I've, across these 40 years, I've had the honor of working in a lot of different companies and and actually working with thousands of different leaders. And today, there still exists this spectrum of leaders. There are still leaders out there that blame employees for getting injured. There are leaders out there that are chasing numbers instead of thinking about people. And then we have these transformational leaders that are just doing exceptionally well in getting people home safe each and every day. So there's been a change in the landscape. There's still a lot of people that can't overcome their personal thinking traps relative to safety. Very much so, Don. And we're curious, our next question for you is, we understand that you may not have a crystal ball, but we're curious what might the future of safety leadership look like and how it might evolve down the road? Another really good question. I think that this concept of leadership moves beyond safety and leadership. It moves towards more of a concept about leaders having a passion for people. And they have to have this passion for people orientation to be successful. And, and where that leads us is that it means that we have to be concerned about the whole of the individual. How is the employee experiencing the workplace overall? I think safety leadership moves beyond just safety and into total worker well-being. So that, to me, is primary. Related to that, and is going to be a future challenge, is the integration of what employees are going to see as invasive technologies. Technology that gives companies and leaders 
minute by minute information about that employee, where they're at, the, the things that they're doing. That technology in and of itself is positive, I think, for uh, safety as a whole. If I'm a leader that has a passion for people, I'm going to be very, very careful about the implementation of that type of technology. I'm going to consider why is it that we're wanting to use that technology? Are we using that technology to create a learning organization or am I trying to catch people doing something wrong? I think if I'm a leader that has a passion for people, my orientation is going to be around learning. And I'll just give you a quick example of what I mean. There are companies out there that are now using drones to fly over remote areas where employees are working and where there's not leadership and they're filming what they're seeing. That can be a very educational process or companies can use that to try to catch people doing things wrong and punish them. I don't think that's what we want to use that type of technology for. So two parts, passion for people and being very concerned about the integration of technology. Speaking of the future, how do you think this current COVID-19 pandemic might alter the trajectory of safety leadership? I'm going to go sideways and then I'm going to come back and answer the question. And the reason I want to go sideways is I think it's important to understand what companies are experiencing right now. As I talk to executives about safety performance in, in this era of COVID, I'm actually hearing three different stories. The first story is we're having the best safety performance that we've ever had in our company's history. In some cases, I'm hearing 50% reductions in frequency rates across this period of time. That's one story. The second story I'm hearing is we're experiencing better than, than expected OSHA recordable or reportable experience, but we're having more serious injuries. And then the third thing I'm hearing is organizations that are just having an extremely difficult time with injuries. Their injuries are on the rise. Those are the three types of, of scenarios I'm hearing most commonly. Now, what that tells me is that tells us something about safety leadership in that organization. We could develop theories and stories about why they're having the experience they're having, but they need to figure that out. We do know from our experience that these companies that are having the worst performance than they've had in a long time, it likely means that their systems and their safety leadership was weak to begin with. And when they had to to move all of their attention to COVID, it meant all of this other uh, safety-related activity was, wasn't being done. And so I think why I wanted to come at it that way was I think that this is an incredible opportunity for us to learn about what is the status of our organization relative to safety leadership? How strong are we really? Second, I think COVID was a wake-up call for many leaders. They've had to interact with their workers in a way, much, much more aggressive way, many more engagements with their, their leaders. And I think they found out that maybe they weren't as good in their relationships as, as they thought they were. And so as we come out of COVID, I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be this realization 
that we've been training leadership, but we haven't been developing leaders. And there is a, a huge difference in doing leadership training and doing leadership development. So I, I think that that's going to be a, a big lesson learned for a lot of organizations. Well, Don, you touched on this a little bit with the uh, discussion about relationships, but we're curious, are there any other significant changes in, in safety leadership that have occurred during the pandemic? And, and if you could talk about some of those. I think there's one really big one. And we mentioned it earlier in the first question, but that's the movement towards this concept of worker well-being overall, not just people's physical safety, but the stress that they're under, the how much urgency are they experiencing in the workplace? What What is the relationship that they have with their peers, with their supervisor, and how is that influencing how they're experiencing the workplace? We all know that that employees are coming to work under much more stress Many of them have suffered illness themselves or suffered personal loss. As a leader, I have to step back and think about how do I manage and lead my people differently in this environment? I think that the United States in particular is behind in this particular area. There's no doubt that other countries, uh, Australia, uh, countries in Europe, are farther ahead in thinking about worker well-being. Some people call it psychological safety. But I think psychological safety is a little bit too limiting. It's not something we have to be afraid of. I I think that organizations and leaders think that I'm getting too far into person's personal life. That's not what this is about. This is about workplace well-being, something that we can control during the time that that employee is on the job. You may have spoken on this a little bit as well during during some of your answers, but what are some of the other important skills that safety leaders need right now? In this environment, and I, I suspect these are true at any point in time, but I, I think especially right now, leaders have to connect with their employees multiple times every day. Now, we're really talking about middle managers and frontline leaders that are able to have these touch points. And they have to listen and they have to really listen and they have to, they have to listen for those cues from their employees that they're experiencing stress, they're experiencing urgency. I think self-reflection is a critical component to this. As a leader, I need to step back and think about how am I impacting the experience that employee's having? Am I placing undue urgency on them? Am I introducing a stressor into the relationship that I could actually do something about? Are there stressors between the team members that I'm allowing to continue to exist and I'm not dealing with it? And so I have to reflect as a a leader, what am I doing that is either creating to a more positive work environment or not? Third, they have to know what they're exposures are that can lead to serious injuries and fatalities. When we're in a stressful time, like we are with COVID, we've got a lot of new things on our plate, lots of new new activities that we have to take care of. We can't lose focus on those exposures that can cause loss of life, loss of limb. And 
we have to be talking to our employees about those exposures, but more importantly, we have to talk to them about how we are going to control those exposures. And we have to put a stake in the ground that we expect them to do so. There is nothing so important that we won't take the time to pause the work and fix an exposure problem, especially as it relates to serious injury and fatalities. And last, and again, this probably applies all the time, but you have to genuinely care about the people. And again, this goes back to self-reflection about what is my position as I think about the employees and how, if I don't genuinely care about them as individuals, what can I do to change my orientation? And there are things that we can do as individuals to change the way in which we think about our role in the organization as a safety leader. Well, this was great. Thank you so much once again for joining us, Don. Uh, We appreciate the chance to speak with you on this topic. We hope it provides some help for the people out there. To read more from Don and other contributors about safety leadership, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com. The three of us come from the sports writing world. One of our favorite events occurs this month, and that's the NCAA basketball tournament. We're going to share some of our favorite memories of NCAA tournaments past, and I'll start. I, For me, the, the greatest memory uh, was 1985, uh, Memphis State went to the Final Four. I remember watching one game during that run. We got to go upstairs to the third grade classroom, and you got the choice of watching either a film or you got to watch Memphis play Penn in the opening round. And I, I watched the game, but I also kept an eye on the film just in case it was, you know, there was something interesting going on there. One of our neighbors painted little blue tiger paws on us before the um, – the game against Villanova, and unfortunately that didn't turn out so great for for fans of uh, Memphis or Memphis State, now Memphis. I also got to see two runs to the Elite Eight for my alma mater. How about you, Kevin? Well, as also has likely been mentioned on this podcast in previous episodes, Alan and I share a collegiate alma mater, University of Missouri. So yes, those, those Elite Eight runs are nice, but there's quite a bit of, of heartache in between. And remember, just about being ready to be called up to dinner from downstairs when Tyus Sedney went the distance uh, in that when UCLA won it in 95, but I think it was a second rounder. Mizzou was an eight or a nine and the Bruins were one. Also remember the, the Bryce Drew buzzer beater against Valpo in 98. And it was either early dismissal or spring break, but I was just hanging out at a friend's house and it just so happened that, you know, so often we see these things in the tournament recap or something, but I, I do remember catching that one live. My wife has done a bunch of high school basketball coaching. And a couple of years ago, we went and saw uh, Notre Dame play. It was some pretty exciting stuff. They were the one seed and the defending champ, but I know they got pushed to the brink by Texas A&M in the Sweet 16 and then had a fairly easy go of it against Stanford. But it was just a nice atmosphere. The The magnitude of it being an NCAA tournament um, was was pretty cool to, to see. Barry, how about yourself? Well, I've actually had the unique experience of attending NCAA tournament games in Milwaukee a number of years ago. Really cool event to, to go to as a fan. The one I remember most was in 1983, the Jim Valvano NC State team. And the reason I remember that growing up was there was a player on NC State from my hometown in suburban Chicago named Terry Gannon. 
And folks may remember Terry Gannon. He is an ABC sports commentator, does a lot of figure skating and other sports. But I always remember that team. And I remember staying up late at night uh, watching games on the West Coast. They were involved in a game against Pepperdine where they had a big comeback at the end of that game just to move on in the tournament and eventually won it all on the, you know, shocking play against the University of Houston, which was the massive favorite in that Final Four. And Alan, as I throw it back to you, I will not mention the two blowout losses that my alma mater, Eastern Illinois, has suffered in the NCAA tournament. Oh, that's okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, now we want to hear from our listeners. Uh, Chime in with your favorite March Madness moment by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or check in with the hashtag SafeSidePopQuiz on social media, and we might read some on a future episode. Well, we want to say thank you to everyone out there for spending a little bit of time with us today here at On the Safe Side. And remember, if you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just the publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. And to get a free copy or learn more, you can visit our brand new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com family or you can subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. In the meantime, we'd really appreciate it if you could tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback with us, please email us at safehealth at nsc.org. And to find stories such as Alan's situational awareness story, as well as the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank our colleague and sound guru, Chelsea Yang, for all of her hard work on this podcast. Original music was provided by Steve Maslin. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. Until then, folks, please stay on the safe side.